This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. It's a windy day and I'm at my house outside in the backyard. You may be able to hear the wind through the trees here. And I'm kind of daydreaming looking out between these trees and picturing it in the past here, this place. It's something I always seem to do. I live in Bellingham in Washington State. I wonder, what was it like in, say, the year 1020? What did this place look like a thousand years ago? So here it would have been giant trees everywhere and wildlife like grizzly bears, eagles, orcas, salmon. I also love thinking about stories from those times because in my heart I'm a storyteller. Stories are part of human culture, a way to entertain and to pass on knowledge. They're, they're history and stories can change the way the world is. They're powerful. Between the trees I can see the ancestral home of the Lummi Nation, the original Native American inhabitants of this area. I can just picture people paddling dugout canoes across the water. They have been telling stories for thousands of years. My name is Lisa Wilson. I am a Lummi tribal member. And it's been taught to me that we are the Lactamish people. We are survivors of the flood. I have friends who are connected to that long lineage of stories and this place as it was a thousand years ago and beyond. The Lummi people are born storytellers and, in many ways, natural environmentalists. It's the life way of our people, you know, to pass on our history. And when you, that, when you have that, then you're able to care for this place that we live in. Today, we'll explore the power of stories from the wild and those who have been telling them for the longest. How stories remind us about the past and, just as importantly, what they can teach us about the future. And even how stories can help defend the wild. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. My friend Lisa Wilson loves a good story, and I've asked her to share one that is very special to her and her people. It's a creation story, how her people came to be. I know you, and I know you like to tell stories, and I do too. I think it's partly why we have a laugh together. It's funny, isn't it, that it's in there. I think it's my Irish ancestry, another storytelling society. Oh, you are. So, yeah, double whammy. <laughs> you get it from both sides. Yeah, yeah. That explains it. Yes. I've forgotten about your Irish roots, too. Yeah. yeah. Lisa is a Native American member of the Lummi Nation here on the coast of Washington. And like me, she has a bit of Irish in her, too. She's about to tell me the creation story. And she becomes quite serious, because for the Lummi and all the Coast Salish people, it's an important one to get right. In their culture, stories are sacred. She tells me there are many she has not even been told yet. I don't know all of the stories, 
and I'm still learning. But the stories that I remember from my own version is the flood story. Uh, we are the survivors of the flood, and it's always been told to me that um, the word for that is chush chishqualachin cm, and that means we are the survivors of the flood. Lisa is careful to tell me that this is her memory of the ancient Lummi story. A person in our village, he got warning that there was going to be a big flood. He came to the village to warn the people that we are in for a big flood and that we need to prepare. We needed to build canoes that would sustain this big flood. But in this canoe, we needed to make sure that our youth was going to be in that canoe because they were our future. But we also needed to put in that canoe what our youth and our children needed in the future. So we gathered those things and we've tied the canoes together. We put the supplies that we needed into the canoes. And all of a sudden the rain started happening just like the warning. And um, it rained for many days and many nights and they could no longer see land. The people were in their canoes for a long time before the rain stopped. Finally it did and the flood subsided and as the water dropped, it revealed the land once again. They set up their villages with long houses and started to gather food. Groups of people headed out to gather ducks in one area. Some gathered salmon in another, others for oysters and shellfish and octopus. They started to spread further apart and settle in different areas. So the oldest person in the village started to worry that we were not going to be one people. So he gathered the people together. They all brought their foods and had a dinner to discuss how they were going to evolve as a people. And so the, they came up with that, you know, we can separate as a people, but we are the Lactamish people. We are the survivors of the flood, and we cannot forget that. So they told the people that if they spread off and they rename who they are, they need to keep the ish at the end, and that will identify who we are. So, you know, we had the Duwamish, we had the Swinomish, we had the Samish, we had the Skakomish, and those are the people that separated, but we always knew that that was who our people were. How do you feel when you're telling a story like this about your people's ancient history? When I tell the stories and think about those ancestors, I feel really grateful that they did survive the flood. And I feel grateful that it not just survivors of the flood, but our people are just survivors, period, of whatever that has come, whatever adversities that have come before us. We have overcome them and we've adapted we were people that had to adapt to things that we didn't know, but not only did we adapt, we thrived. The Lummi call themselves the Salmon People, the people of the sea. They've been here on the Pacific Northwest coast for over 10,000 years, from time immemorial, as I've heard them say. Through their long history, stories have been their lifeblood, a verbal documentation of their lives. Elders are like the keepers of these stories. They keep them alive by telling them and sharing them. 
I know one elder who's been doing just that. I'm uh, getting ready to head out with Daryl Hilaire from the Lummi tribe and I figured I'd pull some things together. It's really cold out there. I figured a nice thermos of tea might be good. I pick Daryl up from his office in downtown Bellingham and we drive towards a spot he knows by the Nooksack River. As we pass by a large house, Daryl points to it. My dad said Hetalak used to trade masks with the settlers there in that mansion there. I look at him and he's smiling gently. Hetalak was his great-grandfather. Daryl's history goes back a long way here. We arrive at the river and settle down to talk at a picnic bench as it starts to snow. Some tea. Seems like a tea kind of day. This is the Nooksack River. It's wide and flowing slowly, full with the recent rains. This river has always meandered through Lummi history. Well, we're here at at the mouth of the river here, and it uh, waters sacred to our people. Everything we do is is signaled, is forecast through our relationship with with the water here, with the animals here, with the salmon here, our biological clock is attuned to what what nature gives us uh, different times of the year. Daryl is 66 years old, and like all Lummi people, the salmon have always been a part of his life. Historically, the Lummi inhabited the islands that are now known as the San Juan Islands from the flood story that Lisa told. Daryl laughs. He tells me asking an elder where they're from can lead to a one-hour conversation. You know, I come from this place we call Lummi, but I also come from a place called Samish. And I also come from this place called Sanich. And I also come from this place called Cowichan. Throughout our Coast Salish territory, our people lived, you know, and they followed the salmon, you know, and they had villages in the San Juan Islands. They had villages uh, along the pathway of the salmon as it returned to the Fraser River. So we had many homes. But when white settlers arrived in Washington state in the late 1700s, it began a huge erosion of Native American culture and rights. It was just the beginning of a very difficult time for Native Americans. The Europeans had brought disease and alcohol and hardship. His people were persecuted. Their many homes were taken away. And their way of life was almost extinguished. Stories became more important than ever. They were the key to keeping their knowledge and their culture alive. And Daryl's great-grandfather played a major role in that. Your great-grandfather had an influence on this tribe and on you, didn't he? And can you talk about him? Hetalak uh, uh, is, is um, my uh, great-grandfather that, whose name is uh, used most often because he was a spokesperson. He was a storyteller. And he was the one that, in 1855, he was a young boy. 1855 was a pivotal year in the lives of Native American tribes in the Puget Sound area. A treaty was being drawn up between them and the United States government. He was nine years old and, uh, and the governor's representatives came through here and he said, you folks need to come down to a place called Muckleteo. You need to come down there so we can agree on some things. And so the leaders got together and they, they decided that they should go down to Muckleteo in 1855 to talk about what the governor and his people wanted to negotiate. 
It was a volatile time, and what the governor wanted to negotiate with the Lummi and other tribes was land and a way forward. My great-grandfather was nine years old, and he got in a canoe with the elders, and they paddled down to Mukilteo from here, from some of the villages around here. And they got down there, and he listened to what was being said. The Treaty of 1855 that was signed that day took most of the land away from tribes. They had to secede their territory and they were pushed onto small Indian reservations. They did retain some of their rights, including their right to fish. He and nine other uh, young boys were there as witnesses. The elders are really deliberate in bringing these young boys down there to be the uh, tape recorder for the proceedings. (laughs) So he carried uh, what was said in his heart for the rest of his life. On through the early 20th century, Native American life continued to be threatened. Their spirituality was outlawed. Darrell describes times when tribal members were being arrested for practicing their beliefs and even for telling their stories. All of it influenced his great-grandfather. Chetaluk grew up knowing that their way of life was literally being taken away. So what did my great-grandfather do? He got everybody dressed up and painted up and he went out into the road and says, here, here I am come and get me, you know, and, and they, didn't, they didn't arrest him or anything because he had such a powerful voice of unity, a powerful voice of uh, creating understanding amongst the people that the people enjoyed what he was doing, so they had no say. <laughs> Heitzeluk understood the power of story and performance, so in the early 1900s, he created a dance and storytelling group and took performances on the road to share their language and songs and their dances with the newcomers in a positive way, to remind them who the Lummi people were and what they stood for, to invite unity. The group included Heitaluk's grandchildren, and he named it the Children of the Setting Sun. Their stories and dances reached people all through the Pacific Northwest until Heitaluk passed away at the age of 98. You know, uh, before he died, he left these instructions to keep my fires burning. The words had a huge influence on the grandchildren. Among them was Darrell's great uncle, Joe Hilaire. Darrell was destined to follow in their footsteps, to tell stories. You're a storyteller. Um, What is storytelling to you? Well, um... For me, it's, it's the life way of our people, you know, to pass on our history. And when you, that, when you have that, then you're able to care for this place that we live in. That's why our, our tribe is such, a, uh, such warriors in protection of the environment, of stopping development where it's not needed, of uh, making people understand that, you know, you can't be doing things to the water and to the land because, you know, our stories come from there and our stories are carried in our hearts. So there's that connection, you know. And so when we say things, we say that uh, we speak from the heart. We don't try to um, argue or debate. No, we just try to seek, seek understanding through storytelling. Is it, is it a way of learning from the past in some ways? It's, uh, it's emerging, you know, when you think about the history of uh, Native people in this country and the founding of this country, uh, which this country being the United States of America, that uh, the real history has not been told in history books, you know, in our institutions. 
So we have to begin to tell our own story, and, and that's emerging now through our language, which is being rediscovered, through our children, children actually stepping forward and practicing our way of life at a young age rather than, you know, later in life. So it's actually uh, being learned in the womb now. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think that's really cool because for a few generations, it was uh, taken away. What do you mean learned in the womb? Uh, our, our mothers and our grandmothers are going to the smokehouses now uh, while they're carrying, you know. So when you're in the womb, your, your cells are being filled with the ancient stories. They're being filled with the language and the songs and the cadences of our people. And that was always true until uh, the newcomers came here and our family structure was destroyed. So putting that back together, it's just really cool to understand oh, wow, this is in our DNA, and we carry that in memory of uh, that, that way of life pre-contact. So the heart and enormous spirit of Daryl's great-grandfather was very intentional, and it was carried through the generations after him, through the children of the setting sun. So after he passed on, then he, uh, his, his son, Joe Hiller, picked it up and continued that, that legacy all the way through to the 50s and 60s, uh, and then... After he passed on, then all those grandkids that my great-grandfather taught, they picked it up, and there were like five versions of the Children of the Setting Sun who were continuing that work. And, and they did right up until a lot of them had passed now. Uh, and um, But they just followed the instructions of my great-grandfather to re- go out and remind the people that were still here. Through the generations, Daryl's family and others like them were carrying stories that were having impact through each of the decades. And we, we fought back from that through self-determination in the 60s and affirming our, our right to harvest salmon in the 70s and then fighting for the right to govern ourselves and the self-governance movement, movement in the 80s and 90s got us to here, you know. Daryl's great-grandfather and his descendants were there through it all. Stories certainly help define a culture, even help a culture survive and win for people and planet. When we come back, the salmon people fight big business head on. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts. In 2011, a huge coal terminal was being proposed here, just north of Bellingham. It was to be the largest coal terminal in North America, to transport coal from North America to China in massive quantities. The proposed construction site for the terminal was an ancient Lummi fishing site and burial ground at a place called Cherry Point, close to the Lummi Reservation. As well as construction, the operation involved huge ocean tankers, I got heard the story about Cherry Point. It was ground zero for coal exports. You can get three times the size of a ship in Cherry Point versus Gulf of Mexico or anywhere on the Pacific coast. 
The tankers would threaten the very salmon the Lummi people have relied on for thousands of years. But when you went and talked to the local governments, the state government, and the, our federal uh, representatives, they were silent. And I thought that was really curious as to why they weren't opposing it, some such high-level development to such a, a pristine area, you know. Darrell thinks it's because the construction was practically a done deal, but not for the Lummi. So we got there, we went to the community, and we asked the community, what do you guys think, you know, what does the community think about this development? And it was a resounding hell no. They were in a better position than anyone to stop it. And the Treaty of 1855 was at the heart of it. It protected their rights to fish for salmon. The Lummi used their rights to fight back. They argued that the proposed terminal would threaten their traditional fishing grounds. And it worked. They won. The terminal was cancelled. 161 years after Darrell's great-grandfather sat at the signing of the treaty as a nine-year-old boy, it's used by Darrell and the Lummi tribe to squash plans for the terminal. I remember that day well. People were in the streets celebrating this decision and the Lummi. The Lummi connection to the sea and the salmon used to defend their way of life and this place. I think we need to shift to some values that uh, represent kind of like indigenous values, this idea of family thought rather than individual thought. That we're all in this together, you know, that we're not separate from, from what's happening here. Family meaning humans, family meaning the river, giving rights to the river, family meaning salmon, Orcas, you know, we're all one. The Lummi's fight for salmon continues, and for forests and orcas too, even for the youngest members of the tribe. You know, you can see it in our kids. One of them is Daryl's grandnephew. He lights up as he talks about him. He's this warrior, and he's just a little guy, you know, he's like six years old, and, but he's got it. I've got to ask you, do you have a, a favorite species, a favorite animal? What are you drawn to? Well, our family's uh, the bear. Our family, uh, ins you know, insignia is the bear. That makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. What are the traits of the bear that might be significant to your family and your great-grandfather? Strength. Strength of spirit. Mm. It's physical strength. It's strength of... Um, of caring for its young ones, you know. That's what stands out to me the most is strength, having strength. In the spirit of his great-grandfather, Darrell has continued to bring stories of the Lummi people to life. He started an organization, and of course, he called it Children of the Setting Sun Productions. I like to tell people Children of the Setting Sun is four years old as a company, but it's been around 110 years. So what I'm doing now is carrying on the uh, legacy of my great-grandfather through storytelling, the stories of our people as told by other people, uh, filming and podcasting and 
books and stage productions. I, I'm trying it all to pull it out of our, our soul, those, those things that are just lying there, this, this idea of a way of life, you know. They, they call it Chilangan in our language. Our way of life is being shared with others. And that's what I'm doing, you know. It's, it's a beautiful life way. It's, it's, a, it's a life way that can't be found, you know, commercially or in a book or in a movie, you know, it's got to be felt. And that's my intention is to create a feeling, not a thinking. What is that feeling? At the end of the day, it's, it's love for place. It's love for the people of this place. It's, uh, it's uh, strength from this place that uh, can be built upon. It's not about me, though. It's about those behind me, you know, that are coming up. The ancient Lummi creation story that Lisa told me earlier about the huge flood and how children were saved in canoes, she says that the lessons from that story are more important today than ever before. We are the survivors of the, of the big flood. And so people my age, for me, I feel that sacred obligation to our ancestors to carry those stories forward for our future generations. And I also feel that obligation uh, because we've adapted as a people to figure out what that is that our children need in their canoes today. So that is what I feel is that I am just, you know, the middle person gaining the knowledge from the ancestors and instilling that, teaching our children today of what they need for their future generations and also carrying on that it is their sacred obligation as well to carry that on to their future generations. The Lummi legacy for those future generations is what this is all about. And it's a pattern and belief system repeated all around the world. Indigenous peoples' lands cover a quarter of the Earth's land surface, so their well-being and the well-being of those lands is good for all of us. It's why the stories told by a river will always be important to Daryl. That's why we take the time to go sit here on the side of the river to think about that, how we can draw ourselves together to, to take care of one another and, and what's happening with uh, Mother Earth. And it's stories that remind us of the past and the future to come, just as Daryl's great-grandfather intended. Is his fire still burning? I believe so. Yep. Who are those guys? Four river otters. Oh my goodness, if there was ever perfect timing. We'd be thankful for that. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Wow, that's like they came to us then, just it with this sure whole did. Yeah. conversation we were having. Pretty chubby too, aren't they? They were. <laughs> yeah. They were yes, yeah, super fat. That was perfect. I'd like to thank Lummi elder Daryl Hilaire and Lisa Wilson for sharing their stories. It was a huge honor hearing them. 
We have a photograph of the original members of the Children of the Setting Sun on our Instagram at The Wild Pod. And our next episode of The Wild, we'll learn how technology has evolved over the years to help researchers study and protect wildlife. Before there were GPS collars and motion detection cameras, researchers had to use some old school tricks to track the movements of animals. You used a string and a part of a hanger, and you had the hanger attached to the string and the string attached to a piece of bait, and then the animal would come and pull on the bait, which would cause the string to pull and cause the hanger to depress and take a photo. MacGyver would be proud. The wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. We have more information on our website, thewildpod.org. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle, in partnership with my work at the Uproar Fund. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Dia Roxley, Tio Popescu, Mariah Powell, Brendan Sweeney, and Jeannie Yandel. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening. My name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.